Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. So in October 2020, Fidelity Investments Canada launched a series of liquid alternative funds. Many liquid alternative funds seek returns that are less correlated with traditional asset classes by using additional investment strategies, such as short selling, borrowing, or derivatives. This can widen the scope of opportunities available to investors beyond long-only investing. On a recent podcast, we heard from portfolio manager Dan DuPont, who manages Fidelity Global Value Long Short Fund. Today, we hear from two portfolio managers who both started at Fidelity in 2008 as analysts. We'll hear from Brett DeLay, manager of Fidelity Market Neutral Alternative Fund, and Dave Way, manager of Fidelity Long Short Alternative Fund. Leading the discussion is Rory Poole, alternative strategist. Among other topics, Brett and Dave shared their thoughts on the current market environment, as well as some details on their individual investment approaches and their respective fund strategy. Today's podcast was recorded on August 16th at an event in Vancouver, with the group also taking questions from the live audience. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Guys, so good to be here in person. It's a nice change. And Brett, you're obviously from Nanaimo, so just across the bay. You went to UBC. How does it feel to be back? It's been, uh, since I was in Vancouver, I think has been in the last eight years I've been here once. So yeah, lots of change and it's nice to be home. And Dave, as the other Dave said, you're from Brampton, Ontario. And to be honest with you, I was thinking kind of long and hard in terms of putting together some meeting notes today about any parallels that I can draw between Vancouver and Brampton. And I pretty much came up with nothing. So no mountains in Brampton. Pardon me? No mountains in Brampton. (laughs) Certainly not a similar skyline, that's for sure. But nevertheless, we're thrilled that you're here with us today. I would say maybe kind of before we get into your respective strategies, which we'll spend the bulk of the time on, maybe we can start with some kind of high level thoughts on the market as a whole. Obviously, there's a lot of conflicting notions out there in terms of where it's been, where we're potentially moving going forward. Brett, maybe I can throw it to you to kick things off. Yeah, sure. So um, we're at a very interesting time, I think, in the market. I think, you know, where there's talks about entering a slowdown, perhaps we're already in one. Are we going to a recession? Again, perhaps we're already in one. Things are tough. Housing-related gains are slowing or declining. Interest rates are higher. Inflation is everywhere. Earnings outlooks have been cut. That's all bad, but it's also all known. I don't think what I'm saying is a surprise to anyone. And the market's down a lot. So I think what we're trying to solve for and what the market's trying to solve for is do things get worse from here? Or are we sort of through the worst of it and maybe things get better? And so we're seeing extreme heightened volatility in the market. We all know the stock market's going up or down 3% every other day. And so it's a, it's, that's what we're trying to figure out is the market's trying to sniff out, does it get worse or does it get better? And that's for people like Dave and I to figure out. And I think that's where we're spending a lot of our time. 
Dave, your thoughts? Yeah, sure. I think I would probably share a lot of what uh, Brett said as, uh, I guess, things that I'm thinking about and building into my uh, portfolio construction and thinking about individual stocks. And I guess I would really just zero in on a couple of things that I think really matter. You know, in Canada, we were spared, you know, really the worst of the GFC from a housing perspective relative to our neighbors to the south. And I think, you know, that will be something that will be uh, a challenge for us to overcome relative to other markets. And number two, you know, I think the key question in big, bold letters is what's the, what is the Fed going to do? And will they, as, you know, as Brett was alluding to, you know, the big question is, are they going to tighten faster or slower or more or less than what the market's priced in? And, you know, I think as we've kind of priced in, I think it was the S&P's up, you know, low teens quarter to date, which I think is a rally not a lot of people would have expected. And why at Fidelity, we kind of try to manage through these short-term volatilities, you know, trying to pick the best stocks and staying in the market, because you don't know when you're going to get, you know, a 13% rally in six weeks when all the headlines are really negative. But what we're really trying to focus on are the key things that matter. And I think one thing that I would really try to zero in on is what's happening in the labor market. So wage inflation, um, we all know that all that stuff and all those boats moving around that was constrained by COVID, as China reopens, those boats start to move and people shift their consumption from buying you know, coolers and camping equipment towards experiences, uh, we know that there's going to be a big shift in spending towards the service economy, which is very labor intensive. So, you know, the thing that I'm watching is, you know, what's happening with the labor market? Who are the companies that can pass on higher wage prices? And how hard is the Fed going to need to tighten in order to bring labor conditions back into balance? Because I think that's ultimately what solves the inflation piece. Maybe we can move on to some product stuff then now. Brett, we'll start with you. Market Neutral Alternative Fund. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and how you invest? Yeah, I'd love to. So, so I run the Fidelity Market Neutral Alternative Fund. And so it is a true market neutral. It is a true hedge fund. And so what that means is the fund has a beta of zero and a correlation of zero with the underlying equity markets, fixed income, commodities. So it is idiosyncratic. It moves in its own way. And so the way that that is structured is a dollar invested goes a dollar long and a dollar short for a net exposure of zero. And the way I manage the fund is what I'm trying to do and what we're trying to offer is something that is not correlated with other asset classes. So the way I make sure that this is happening is when I wake up in the morning and I look at the futures and the NASDAQ is up a bunch or it's down a bunch, the Dow's up, oil's up, whatever, I have no idea how my fund is going to perform that day. And that is the entire point. Because what I'm focusing on is stocks versus stocks, relative value between equities. And so the fund is constructed with equities. I can use indexes. I don't. I haven't. I have approximately 50 longs and 100 shorts, and we'll get into the reason why. And I keep my exposures really tight. And so what that means is if I'm going long you know, a high multiple high growth stock, I want to go short a high multiple high growth stock on the other side. I don't want to do growth versus value. If that's a bet that somebody wants to make, there's other ways everybody in this room can achieve that. But that creates a bit of a bias and an exposure, and that's not what this fund is about. This fund is truly about zero correlation with underlying markets, and um, that's the way that I've got it constructed, and that's how it's performed. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit more with respect to risk management. Like Obviously, on a product that's running at approximately 200% notional exposure relative to investor assets, there's, there's probably a heightened degree of sensitivity 
as it relates to risks. Maybe you can talk to everybody a little bit about, particularly on the short side, kind of how you go about uh, managing risk within a fund that's equal parts. Sure. And so maybe taking a step back. So the way that the fund is constructed is, is a series of pair trades. And so that is going, you know, long one stock and short one, two, or three stocks of similar veins, similar sectors, similar types of businesses on the other side. And so for stocks that are less volatile, say I'm uh, entering a position, say, within the utility sector, that could be a one-to-one. But if I'm doing something in the sort of high growth, high multiple area, it's more like one long versus three shorts. And shorts, to me, position sizing is, is key, especially when you're running 100% long and 100% short. And so short positions have to be smaller. And the reason for that is simple. It's, a very, it's the opposite dynamic of long. So when you are wrong on a short, your bet actually gets bigger, right? The stock price goes up, which means you are now short more of it. When you're wrong on a long, your bet size goes down. The stock price has gone down, you own less of it. So because of that, the dynamics of shorting, I think, require a heightened risk control. And so you need to have smaller positions just to make sure that if you do get something wrong, you're not forced to blow out of your position because the weighting becomes too prohibitive. That's what a short squeeze is. So that's one thing I monitor very closely. We have risk reviews. Uh, we have exposure reviews every week, risk reviews every couple months. They're like 60 pages. It shows all your exposures. Dave and I have, and Dan have specialized software that shows us real-time you know, changes in short interest, changes in cost of borrow, changes in crowding, which means is everybody short this stock, which is very dangerous, as you know, many of us learned sort of in the GameStop type, uh, type era. And so um, totally different dynamic and something we watch very, very closely. You mentioned growth tech. Funnily enough, as an analyst, maybe something unknown by many folks in the crowd, but Brett worked very closely with Mark Schmale, who's a portfolio manager on a number of different growth strategies for Fidelity and still an avid growth investor, albeit within a, uh, a market neutral type of product. So maybe just something that is related to what we're going through right now, but we've obviously seen re-rating kind of across the board to differing degrees within growth tech. How are you as a growth tech investor, like finding winners or even losers for that matter within the environment that we're in right now? Yeah. So again, I think what's key there is risk control. And so matching my exposure. So high growth versus high growth. So the high growth market, you know, stocks are down 70% year to date. And that's just fine. As long as I'm pairing things correctly, I'm looking for relative value differences. So if I own a stock that is down a lot, which I do, as long as it's paired with stocks on the other side that are down more, we make money. And so whether the NASDAQ or the growth market or the multiples go way up or way down is sort of inconsequential to what I'm doing if we're managing risk correctly. And so you know, this year, I think we saw everything's down and everything's down a lot and kind of the same. There's been no differentiation. So that leads to a lot of opportunity right now. There are winners and losers. There always are. And so they've been treated the same. So I've got the fun position where the companies that I think have better management teams, larger TAMs, bigger, more durable growth are down as much and trading at same multiples as companies that just don't have those positive features. So those are examples of pair trades that I have on. And I think over time, it will play out in a way that's going to be very beneficial. That's great. Thanks, Brett. Dave, maybe we'll move to you. So kind of similar initial question. Can you tell us a little bit about the long short alternative fund and what you really feel makes you unique as an investor? Sure. So the long short fund, 
uh, that I manage. It has approximately 50 positions on the long side and 30 to 40 positions on the short side. What makes the fund a bit different from Brett is that I actually maintain exposure to the market over time. Uh, I'm an optimist by nature, and even though we may go through periods where the market offers up uh, different levels of sort of a market return, the goal of this fund is to have exposure to the market of you know, 80 to 100% over time and really uh, try to outperform the market over the long run with lower volatility. And the, you know, the fund's been around for a couple of years. And as a style agnostic investor, it's really important to me to try to go after whatever opportunity the market may be offering. I'm always looking at you know, where the best opportunities are. And you know, I think, especially in the current environment where we've seen a bit of a reflation in the market and we could debate about on an individual stock level, whether some of these recoveries are justified. To me, this is just a really great time to try to be able to attack both markets. And you know, the thing that you asked me what's unique, I think what's unique is as an analyst, everyone at Fidelity is always interested in how good is good. And I think as a Fidelity analyst, it was a bit unique that I was interested in you know, bad situations, like how bad is bad? Because you, know, you can analyze the company and say, oh, we shouldn't own it, um, and that's enough. But I always spent a little bit of extra time to understand, you know, how a company could fall apart. And as a result, my, you know, the sell ratings that I had on stocks um, did a lot better than the average fidelity analyst. So uh, I think that's a really good skill set to have right now where, you know, the market is offering up kind of, you know, some really good selective long opportunities. Um, and especially as we've got to kind of the other side of this, you know, near term rally, there's actually a lot of stocks that, you know, have doubled off their lows. And perhaps I was a bit nervous about short, shorting them 100% ago. They've now pre- presented an interesting entry point. And so certainly why I'm really excited to be managing this fund right now. And in that light, like gross versus net exposure, it's a question that all long short managers tend to get in terms of how they manage it, depending on where we are within the market or any other variables that are affecting the portfolio. And obviously, from your standpoint, like that's part of the gig in terms of portfolio construction. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of manage those two metrics, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. So if you run a long short fund, there's two sources of return. One is the spread, so how your longs do versus your shorts, multiplied by your gross exposure. And so if you're in a period where you feel like you're really generating good spread where you see your longs being really strong relative to your shorts, you wanna amplify that. So you wanna have a higher gross exposure. So for me, typically what you'll see is a long portfolio that is 130 to 150% of net assets. And then you'll see a a short portfolio that is 20 to 50% of gross assets. that's how I kind of get to 80 to 100% net exposure. And, you know, as we came out of COVID, I was running, you know, like 140-40. And as we got into choppier points in the market, I'd be running 80% net exposure and I'd have, you know, gross exposure of kind of, you know, 120-40. And so as you see more opportunities, you can increase your gross exposure. And as you see fewer opportunities or maybe want to position yourself more defensively, you can, you can bring in the gross exposure. But I think it's really important as a long short manager that you understand where your return's coming from. And that's how I think about gross versus net exposure. Great. 
Let's talk about the team a little bit. It's obviously such an important part of what we do at Fidelity as a firm holistically, but I should even say even more so with these products. You two obviously have been great analysts or were great analysts for a number of years for us, starting together at virtually the same time. So almost growing up in the system together, if you will, as investors. How do you use the research within the context of these products? And are there any additional resources that we can talk about that are unique to that of our liquid alternative funds compared to that of our traditional funds? Uh, maybe, Brett, I'll start with you. Sure. So let's, let's talk about what the job of an analyst is at Fidelity. And so Dave and I were analysts. We covered numerous different sectors. So as an analyst, you get a sector, and your job is to find the winners and losers within that sector. Part of the job is to rate stocks along a scale, buy, buy versus sell. And over time, our, the, the analyst team's buys have outperformed the market by about 700 basis points, and the sells have underperformed by about the same amount. And so the way I think about my fund on a pair trade perspective is I'm looking to find relative differences between similar types of stocks. An analyst is looking to find relative differences between similar types of stocks. That is their job. So the way that I run the fund is I'm able to buy our analyst buys, short our sells, capture that valuation difference over time, and basically just use the process that we've been developing that Dave and I have executed for you know, the past 10, 20 years, find these ideas, create a pair trade, repeat that process over and over and over again, approximately 50 times, and that's how my fund is created. So you know, I'm not necessarily looking for, when we talk about shorts, it doesn't have to be a company that I think is a fraud or is going bankrupt. There's some of those, and if they go bankrupt, that's fantastic. But there's also high-quality companies that are paired on the other side against other high-quality companies, but maybe one's more expensive, one's going, undergoing a product cycle that I think could be growth additive, one's not. So it's, um, it's a very dynamic process, but it uses the way that we structure our research and the job that the analyst does every day is how the fund is kind of created. That's the whole premise of what we're trying to do. Dave, anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, I think what I would add is, so Brett's talked about this army of analysts, you know, the hundreds of analysts we have globally looking at individual companies, and they're looking for longs and, you know, buys and sells, um, and they're responsible for maintaining the core company relationship. So, like, take, like, this morning, for example. So, within my short position, I've had a number of shorts in uh, companies uh, based in China, listed in the U.S., um, there was a certain automotive company that missed their numbers. Um, the stock was down. And so I was able to talk with the analyst overseas about what they thought about the company and whether I should maintain, grow, or cover my short position. And then I had two companies with CEOs, two company meetings, uh, one that was hosted in London, one that was hosted in Toronto. So it was just like a fire hose of expertise coming from these core group of analysts. And then the other thing I'd say is there's another group of analysts, which people may be surprised to hear that Fidelity has a dedicated short-selling analyst team. So we have a number of people uh, positioned globally who look at different parts of the market and tend to be a little bit more generalist in nature. So they work with the fundamental analyst um, in short-selling portfolio managers like myself and Brad and Dan and the people who short and other uh, geographies. And what they're really searching for is really specialized short-selling research. And so we share ideas amongst that group, work with the fundamental analysts. Um, and in Brad and I's case, for sure, there are other specialist research firms that we'll engage with that you know, are definitely not household names, 
but they're, they might have six to seven analysts and they do fundamental short selling focused research, servicing a very small number of institutional clients. Um, and for me, like the Holy Grail is where you have all three of those resources lining up together, combined with my own portfolio construction, saying we should short this stock. So we have a really you know, in-depth and expert uh, research team. And I think that probably would surprise people who might think of Fidelity as having a lot of analysts going out looking for stocks to buy. And I think it's a lot more than that. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I would just add on top of that. And the folks that work behind the scenes with respect to risk management and our trading group, they don't tend to get a, a fair bit of credit in terms of what they do, particularly on these products. But we would be uh, remiss if we did not mentioned at the very least uh, how much of an integral part they are of the whole process of these three liquid alternative funds. So one thing that Rory just like generated. So last summer there was a big issue with this thing called gamma shorting and it's without getting too technical, it's when the options market impacts the stock market. And so I have a, an MBA, but I am not a rocket scientist. And I built a model that sort of pulled in a bunch of data and would try to send some signals about, should I be worried about a, a gamma squeeze, which is what really causes stocks to like go up 50% in a short squeeze. And I, I came up with like kind of a working model, but I knew there were two or three things that you know, were big assumptions that were, weren't true in the real world. So I had the benefit of handing it over to a real rocket scientist who is on our team and is a, like a, basically a, a finance math wizard. And I said, here's the model, here's what's wrong with it, can you work with it? And a week later, we had a meeting and he had really refined the model to provide more granular knowledge about what was going on. And I kind of didn't expect a redo of what we saw last year with like GameStop. You saw like Bed Bath & Beyond up 65%. And what I can tell you is that these models helped us uh, avoid some of these stocks and understand where you know, we could see additional short squeezes. So that's a really good point about the, the risk team really interacting with both the trading desk, giving us real-time information, and the fundamental analysts and portfolio decisions. For sure. And I want to come back to that point in a little bit with respect to gamma risk. But Brett, maybe I'll pick on you to talk a little bit about leverage. And I think that the concept and, and the word itself has always been a bit of a scary term for investors. So can you talk a little bit about how leverage is utilized within this fund and how you do it as effectively as possible. Yeah, so the way that we would define leverage in this fund is the fund has a gross exposure of 200%. So that $1 becomes $1 long and $1 short. So that's 200%. We keep it right at 200%. It's like plus or minus 200 basis points on that. So I'm not making directional bets. That's for somebody like Dave to do. It's a different type of product. And so that's as much leverage as we use. And so we're not taking that and then adding additional leverage on that to really torque up the returns. That's not, that's not the premise of this fund. So it is leverage in the sense that it is, you know, $1 becomes $2, but there's no additional leverage, which is, um, I think, something different than some of our peers. Yeah, we, we definitely do not engage in cash borrowing um, within these products. The only leverage by technical definition that's within the funds is through the exposures that are created through the short positions and if they're potentially being redeployed to that of, of long portfolios. Dave, you're an avid Twitter follower, as am I, and there's probably many folks in this room that are as well. And I have to say, in terms of the last handful of months, not a day has gone by without that Goldman Sachs retail favorites 
index showing up on my feed. There's obviously a ton of speculation out there, even still today, valuations have been all over the place depending on where you look within the market. How do you kind of manage some of those risks that you were just alluding to that are so concurrent when it comes to shorting within this environment, whether it be squeezes, whether it be gamma risk or anything else uh, of that nature? Yeah, so I think the first thing is what I mentioned about the gamma risk and just making sure that as retail flows back into the markets, you know, a lot of the way that this speculative capital is making it into the market is through the use of options and, and uh, other levered instruments. And so one of the things you can do is you can own CBOE, which sells S&P uh, index futures. And to, it's been a really strong growth category for that index. So you could take advantage of that on the long side. But as you build a short portfolio, we're in the business of making money. And so I can have an intellectual view that company XYZ is worth $0, and they're going to run out of money in four quarters. But it's really important to marry that fundamental view with a technical understanding of what could cause that stock to double or triple against you on that path to zero. And you know, doing this for a few years now, I've seen a number of situations where this has played out. And I think it's really important to manage your position sizes so that you effectively protect the fund's capital. And as that stock potentially squeezes against other investors, you really pick your entry point where you feel confident about shorting the company and you know, having the conviction to increase your short position you know, once it's clear that the direction of travel is back in favor of your fundamental thesis. So that's really what I've been doing with the fund around you know, keeping track of what's going on and it became clear that there were a lot of positions that got crowded, whether it's short interest, borrowing costs, or even just fundamentally looking at the company and saying, okay, maybe this was a COVID winner. Maybe they're going to make 30 or 40% less than they made before, but that still makes the stock cheap. And it sort of requires really flexible thinking because you're like, it's hammered in your head that if a company is going to have negative earnings revisions, then that's bad. But as Brett's alluded to, what really matters is, are things going to be better or worse than people think? And I think having that open mind about stocks like that keeps you out of trouble um, on the short portfolio and also allows you to pick your spots where you can kind of be contrarian and go against the tide. And, you know, as we've seen, you know, the pain trade has been up um, in terms of, you know, rewarding people who did that fundamental work to say, okay, I'm happy to own this company for the next two to three years because you know it's massively overshot to the downside. We are getting a question from the audience with respect to Brett's fund. Why is the market neutral fund benchmarked to a 91-day T-bill index when it invests in equities? So the reason for that is this is an absolute return product, right? And so while it invests in equities, we use equities as a tool to, to achieve what we're trying to accomplish it will not have returns that correlate with the equity market. So I want to make that clear, right? Whether the market goes up or down does not have any bearing on how the fund should perform. That's, that's the whole kind of premise of the fund. So to benchmark it against an equity index, I think, is sort of unfair versus what we're doing. We use equities to achieve equity-like returns, which I think are mid-single digit over time, but in a way that is not correlated with the underlying market direction. Yeah, I can add to that as well, actually. It's, I feel like with this product and also with our fee structure, like it's a bit of a technicality. Um, and what I mean by that is typically if you look at market neutral strategies, particularly those that are offered through offering memorandum, 
This is quite consistent, actually. There are many products out there that are aiming to have zero beta or zero market exposure and are aiming to outperform some sort of a, a T-bill or T-bill plus type index over a certain period of time. And that's really what kind of stipulates what fees they collect from a performance standpoint. That's the benchmark or the hurdle rate or the high watermark that they potentially utilize in order to calculate how much a general partner is putting in their pocket at the end of the day. And I think that I can say on behalf of these two guys and Dan as well, like we're in a fortunate spot that running these products under the Fidelity roof, we were able to come to market with what we think are compelling value propositions within these strategies. But at the same time, the whole goal was to not gouge a retail investor's eyeballs out on fees. And so being one of few within the market that are offering these differentiated types of strategies without additional fees on top of that from a performance perspective, um, hopefully resonates with that of your clients and on a year-over-year basis, maybe some makes some of those conversations a little bit easier. Guys, I may kick it over to you just for a moment. Uh, we talked about uh, your kind of broad thoughts about the market at the start. And I know that we're a little bit limited in terms of what we can discuss from individual names based on disclosure. But are there any kind of parts of the market right now that you feel that you're, you're really looking at picking away at, whether it's from a sector perspective, whether it's an industry, whether, Brett, for you, it's a type of pair trade that you're finding out there? Like, as of right now, what is really top of mind? So for me, like, like if we bring it all the way back to kind of the first thing we said where the market's trying to digest, you know, where do we go from here? We know things are bad. The way I kind of think about that is it's all about what's being priced in in certain stocks. And so I'm a believer that the market prices things in about a year in advance, a little under a year. So I'm trying to think it to myself, okay, a year from now, where are we? I think we're in a better place. I think we're maybe through a recession, maybe coming out of it, probably through the worst of it. That's my opinion. We'll see. And so in that scenario, I'm trying to find stocks right now that I think are already pricing in the worst. And so one of the sectors I think is pretty attractive is consumer discretionary. And so there's a lot of stocks in this space that are trading at like single digit, you know, PE multiples. We know the earnings estimates are too high. I understand that. Let's assume the earnings estimates are 50% too high. Well, now that six times earnings multiple is 12 times at the bottom. If the balance sheet's okay, I think that's, that's the type of stock that I want to own over the next couple of years. On the other side of that, are more defensive type stocks that are trading at all-time high prices in some case, all-time high valuations. And I think a year from now, I think that trade could totally, totally reverse. And so for me, I don't know if I'm going to time this correctly. As a matter of fact, I do know I am not going to time this correctly, right? And I am not going to try. So I'm positioning the fund today for where I think we're going to be in a year from now. And then I'm going to be patient and let it play out. Dave? Well, I think I talked about the, you know, there's a number of, of stocks that you are, were down 90% and there's a bit of a speculative rally. And, you know, these might be stocks that I'd love to short, but the short-term technicals, you know, are pretty risky. And so what I'm really doing is I'm trying to pick stocks that fit into this bucket that are kind of away from the main stage. Like, you know, the three or four tickers that show up the most on Reddit, like that's not for me, but 
you know, there are stocks that have, you know, a lot of valuation that are very unlikely to, to deliver the unit economics that they need to be a profitable business. And with the recent rally and the reflation in some of these stocks, I was afraid to short them, you know, call it two months ago, and now they're 75% higher. So I really feel like the opportunity is ripe on the short side um, as well. There's one area of the market that, you know, we're always trying to play a, a different game than the rest of the market because that's how you're different and make money. And one of the areas I look at are in this area that I call like ESG detractors. So these could be companies that, you know, fly their flag under the, you know, environmental decarbonization banner, but really their stock promotion. So they don't have a product, they don't have a management team, they don't have any patents or, you know, really a customer base, but they have a really interesting, you know, investor presentation that's designed to separate people from their money. And that is a game you can't play for very long. And so I've been short a number of those companies. The sort of Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. has really supercharged some of these stocks recently. Um, and there's a whole uh, opportunity to re-engage there. And also, just like broadly speaking, one of the areas I also look at in this ESG detractor pool is, you know, the arena of like, you know, social pressure on companies to do the right thing. A long time ago, it was like you needed to have the bad luck of being the company that got featured on 60 Minutes for doing something bad and then were forced to change. But now there's like social media that's there to coalesce voices into, you know, disparate consumers into a very, very powerful uh, point of influence. And we're seeing this with unionization drives and other things in the market that's putting downward pressure on company earnings. So I don't really apply a moral lens, but there's a lot of companies who are facing increasing social pressure to change. And so I continue to find some interesting ideas there. Not a lot of people in the market are doing it. And I think there's you know, it feels like a place where I have a really good uh, information advantage just from paying attention to the issue. And on the long side, similar to Brat, you're looking for companies where the recession's priced in, but you're also looking for companies where uh, maybe they're defensive companies. And as people got worried about recession risk, they, you know, flock to markets like utilities. And that could be an opportunity on the short side where perhaps you don't want to pay, you know, 30 times earnings or get like an expected 3% return on a utility that doesn't really have a huge ability to pass on price. So you can really look at these key drivers in different ways. And I would say that's sort of the key areas. Great. Appreciate it. I guess more now, turn the kind of page towards your thoughts with respect to how these products can work. Um, I know part of that's my gig as well, but for advisors that are in the crowd, um, I'm sure that they're interested to hear your thoughts on like, how do these products work as diversifiers within an investor's portfolio? Um, given what you know about how the, the retail advisory business works in, within Canada, but also about what you're trying to accomplish within your respective mandates. Sure thing. So, you know, the way I think about, you know, the market neutral alternative fund and any market neutral that is truly beta zero, low correlation, I think try and frame it as, as a different asset class. We use equities like we talked about before, but we don't correlate with the equities. You don't correlate with fixed income. So we use this to, to try and achieve an absolute return that is idiosyncratic versus any sort of movements in the underlying market. You know, one thing we saw this year, uh, year to date, has been the equity markets were very soft. Well, typically we would think, okay, fixed income should be you know, negatively correlated with equity markets. Whoops, right? That didn't happen this year. And so we saw that correlation break down or that sort of balance 
break down. And so I think you need a new way of doing that, a different asset class that can help you achieve you know, return that is not correlated to, to the other asset classes within your portfolio. So that's, that's what I think how the market neutral alternative fund can be positioned in, in anyone's portfolio. And so when I talked about you know, the market having, the stock market having extreme volatility, so annualized volatility is now 30%. That's like as high as it's been in a long, long time. That's what it reached this spring. The market neutral alternative funds volatility profile has been about 5%. So it's like whatever, a fifth of the underlying market. The returns this year have been, you know, they've been better than the underlying market. That's not always going to be the case because if the market goes up 20%, the odds are this fund will not go up 20%. But I think of it as a way to lower the volatility and add a different source of return to the underlying sort of balance portfolio. Yeah, and I th- I'll just add on to that. Like, I feel like we get the question all the time, is this fixed income alternative? And I think it's important to address that to a degree in that I think that what Brett's saying in terms of the typical volatility profile and the lack of correlation that you would expect out, expect out of fixed income really comes through within this product. Having said that, it's not an income-oriented fund. So for a retiree that's looking for a quarterly coupon payment, uh, it, it, this is not the type of thing that's going to provide that. But I think that the most important takeaway, as he mentioned at the start, is, is to think of this as something much different. Dave? Yeah, I'll make two points. Uh, the first one is, so I have 100% of my uh, assets in my fund. Uh, the reason I have this is that I have an 11-year-old son with autism who's got a ton of need. And I really want a product where I can grow my capital as much as possible over the next 10 to 15 years to meet his long-term needs. So I can understand how that doesn't necessarily translate into 100% allocation from your, your clients. But I guess the way that I think about this fund is that if the traditional 60-40 portfolio may face some challenges in the interim period through rising rates and you know, perhaps you know, lower expected equity returns over the next you know, few years, you need something in the portfolio that is a different toolkit that has the ability to go after and attack the market in a way that can generate alpha from multiple different sources. And so my brother is, a, is an advisor as well. And one of the things that he was looking for when I was talking to him about what I could potentially do as a product is have something that acts either as a core equity allocation or within the equity sleeve that provides a different exposure than some of his, either his income generating individual equity securities or long only funds that he may own. And so I really see this product fitting in to any portfolio very flexibly and it really attacks the market in a couple of different ways. And moreover, one of the challenges my brother would tell me is that, you know, he'd come up with great financial plans with his clients and the challenge would come when we had volatility and uncertainty and his clients would call him looking to make the wrong decision at the wrong time. You know, can't handle the volatility. We need to cut our equity exposure. And what he was hoping for is a product that could provide, you know, equity returns that were very attractive. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to beat the market over the medium and long term with lower levels of volatility. And I'm working every day to try to deliver on that promise in the future. That's great, guys. I think we're keeping everybody from lunch. Um, so on behalf of everybody here, thanks so much for coming out today. And it's a fantastic session. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.